G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast, the Round 14 Preview Edition. We are brought to you by Palmerbet. Play the punting advantage this footy season. Always remember to gamble responsibly. Another abbreviated week of footy coming up. Just five games this week. That's because one scheduled for this week was transferred to last week, which was West Coast and Richmond, leaving us with just the five. No Thursday night football this week. That will resume next week, if that all makes sense. And as I say, very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. How's things, Fanny? Yeah, good. I guess uh, a little bit of a different program. We've got one match for review, uh, five matches for preview, news, and, of course, footy flashbacks. I reckon it'll make for a great show. Well, it always makes for a great show. And uh, that is, of course, possible thanks to some wonderful sponsors we have. I mentioned Palmerbet. You can uh, check their odds for Round 14 on the Palmerbet app or at palmerbet.com on your friendly PC. And uh, what about our other wonderful sponsors, Fine? Care to give them a plug? Of course I do. You speak of the wonderful Andrews Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street in Albert Park. You know what? I could go at Andrews Hamburgers. Now, we record this at breakfast time. Actually, I could go a good burger right now. And I'll tell you what. I might beeline it for there straight after the program because they, uh, they've got the sort of burgers that sort of whistle your name in the wind. I'm talking about those beautiful patties, all beef, fresh produce, lettuce. I love the way you describe them, beading with morning freshness, the tomatoes. I take a slice of cheese. I love a cheeseburger. And then those buns, the beautiful, soft, ethereally soft hamburger buns put it all together with loving care and what do you get an andrews hamburger an award-winning hamburger at 144 bridport street albert park rowan do you know if they did a tv ad you know you see the tv ads for like milk and bread and stuff that sort of be a be the andrews hamburgers delivery guy banging on the household door at about 7 a.m in the morning with a big juicy burger just the thing for your breakfast. I've just had a bar of chocolate for breakfast, so I'm certainly not in a position to quibble about what goes in your mouth this time of the morning. I'll tell you what else. I could almost digest that it's so good, Friday, and that is the finest home renovation. Yeah, that door that they're banging on at 7am. I hope it's a West Point Properties build because you'll be living in the lap of luxury all the latest mod cons, architecturally perfect, taking opportunities to really make the most of potentially a smaller footstep in the inner southeastern Melbourne suburbs with a multi-storey build of the highest quality or maybe a renovation. 
Maybe your family's getting larger, and that means that you need more space. Who better to turn to than Nick Spartels and the team at West Point Properties? And another wonderful partner of this podcast is Stats Insider. They are a sports and data-driven industry leader providing model projections and analysis of more than 15 sports across the world, including this year's European Championships. Been watching a bit of them too. Stats Insider simulates an event 10,000 times to best understand both the range of possible outcomes and the probability of each result, along with their famed pre-match and in-game projections Stats Insider is also known for their full season and tournament projections, the likes of which presently indicate that Belgium has a 14.5% chance of lifting its first ever major tournament trophy, while Italy is actually a 63.5% chance of not making the semi-finals. Cool, that could cause a civil war over there. Stats Insider is also home to some of Australia's best independent sports writing analysis. Everything free to use on site. So check them out at statsinsider.com.au. Give them a follow on Twitter at Stats Insider. Okay, there's the plugs out of the way. We've got news. We've got reviews. We've got previews. We've got flashbacks. Let's go. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Okay, plenty of news around. Uh, I reckon the most important news this week uh, is an event going on, not the weekend, but on Thursday evening. And that's when Adelaide's David McKay uh, faces the AFL Tribunal, which will be determining both his guilt or innocence and, if found guilty, a penalty for that very controversial I'm not going to call it a bub, collision with St Kilda's Hunter Clark. Clark, of course, breaking his jaw and looks like being out for about eight weeks, which is terribly unfortunate for him. But another one of these is the bump dead um, controversies. And I think this one is different and important, Finey, because I actually don't think this was a bump. I think this was a collision And uh, I'll argue why in a minute. But uh, first, what were your initial thoughts? And a couple of days down the track, what are your thoughts on this one? Okay. First of all, initially, watching the game and hearing the commentary, well, I'll tell you straight up. I agree. I believe it's a collision. And I just want to say that I think it's good that the incident has gone straight to the tribunal. And I believe that there's a little bit of um, chicken little in this. People sort of worried that the sky is falling in, that once again, the way of playing the game is under attack. I don't think that's the case. I think the Mech Review Officer has understood the thorniness of the question and put it in the laps of the tribunal. Right, I'm going to chip in there because he yep. hasn't finding. It was referred to the tribunal by Steve Hocking, the football operations manager. The match review officer wasn't given an opportunity to classify. Uh, All right. So even Stephen Hocking understands the thorniness of the situation. Look, when the incident happened, I initially, my initial thought was that Hunter Clark, this is on seeing it first time, Hunter Clark had been bumped unfairly. But then in watching it in replay, I am more than comfortable 
to say that under the ruling that states that a player shall not bump another player, uh, even and take response and then take responsibility if that bump should injure him or strike him in the head, as long as they have another option in the piece of play. And I don't believe McKay had any other option. I believe he was committed to the ball. I believe that what he did was, in fact, protect his body by turning it. And I think that is totally fair. But I go back to the commentary, a bit of a hobby horse of ours, Rowan. And wasn't it glibly dismissed by Luke Darcy at the time, who immediately acted as judge and jury and said, no, nothing in that, absolutely part of the game, play on. And I wish commentators wouldn't do it because it was a serious incident. So I'm glad we're looking at it, but I hope that it falls in McKay's favour. Yeah, well, I, I agree entirely. Look, I've penned a column about this, uh, which is for ESPN today, Wednesday. It'll be up on Footyology from Thursday morning. I, I've got a few points to make on this one. Look, I appreciate the AFL's intent in trying to get rid of the possibility of serious injury and protecting the head at all costs. But I think this, this, the way this has unfolded sort of demonstrates that they've backed themselves into a bit of a corner with that. And unless they are prepared to come out and fundamentally accept that accidents happen in a collision sport, we are going to have more and more of these cases. There's some, there's some big contradictions with how this has panned out as well. I mean, first of all, they basically said that it couldn't be classified. It wasn't the normal situation uh, with these sort of incidents. So it couldn't be classified. But they then, in the statement they released on Monday, came out and said that they would be arguing that it was careless, high contact and severe uh, impact. So it's one or the other. You, you can't have it both ways. Um, I've had a, a look at the footage several times over and there's absolutely no question that both players... In fact, there's a, a, fr a couple of frames where both players are in exactly the same stance. They're both sort of crouched over with their arms outstretched, reaching for the football. At literally the last microsecond, um, McKay realises Clark's going to get there first. And as you said, doesn't bump. He braces or, or turns his body to absorb the contact. Now, that's not about choosing to bump. That's about choosing to protect yourself, which I think is every footballer's fundamental right, as long as it's done properly, which he did. So there Rowan, was no... Rowan, more than every footballer's right, it's what every footballer should be taught to do. And we were taught as youngsters to protect your body, not leave yourself open. Not just a right, it's almost their obligation. Yeah, no, that's right. And I agree with you also about the, the chicken little scenario because everyone says, you know, the bump will be dead. Well, it won't be dead because this is a situation that happens quite a lot during a normal game of football. And um, there'll be plenty of these that are okay and there'll be plenty of these that are found to be illegitimate. So the problem will persist, hopefully not that regularly. But my big issue is this, and this is the point I've made in this column, that the AFL bangs on about, you know, making the game safe and, and protecting the head, blah, 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 which is great and, and absolutely agree with that. But 
the very fact that this guy in pursuing a legitimate football action is looking at potentially three or more games on the sidelines, because that's what that classification attracts. When, and yes, I am going to compare it to another incident, we see Shane Mumford for GWS last Sunday, coat hanger a bloke, Taron Thomas, after the whistle's blown and a free kick's been paid. For that, he gets a $1,000 fine. Um, for what it's worth, there was an incident shortly after that where he basically fell on top, as he's prone to do, of Jai Simkin, who's about half his size and weight, and his forearm thumped down and missed Simkin's head by centimetres. And they're the sort of actions that football needs to be stamping out. And this is where the weighting of incidents way too heavily in favour of consequences versus intent leads to problems because McKay's intent was absolutely honourable. The consequences were bad, but it was a mistake. Mumford's intent was shit, to be perfectly frank. It's cheap sniping, which he's been doing far too much of in the last couple of years. And because the consequences, fortunately for Taron Thomas and Jai Simpkin, were minor, oh, let's leave Simpkin out of it. He's been fined for the Thomas one. Mumford gets away with a $1,000 fine for misconduct. Now, that's not right. And that's why the intent of an action has to be weighed a lot more, uh, with a lot more gravitas than it is these days. You have to pay more attention to the intent of an action than I think the AFL judiciary is. I, I agree with that. I mean, just my take on this in, in summation is, whether it's on the football field, and I'm really strong on this because I believe in cricket, it had tragic circumstances. It had tragic circumstances surrounding it, or in life, attempts to make things safer don't always do that, and sometimes do the exact opposite. And what I'm saying is, no footballer at any level can expect the rules to protect them. They need to understand how to protect their body, do exactly what David McKay did and in dangerous situations, shield themselves. Unfortunately, in cricket, the advent of the helmet also saw players, Ian Chappell very strong on this, failing to learn and be taught how to play the short ball properly, properly with, tragic, with a tragic outcome with Phil Hughes. And even in life, we can reduce speed limits on roads, we can have you know, zebra crossings everywhere. But in the end, shouldn't we be teaching our children that roads are dangerous to always look before you cross? I mean, to me, making something safer, if that takes away people's own personal responsibility, it actually makes it more dangerous. So this is a great example of a player, I think, doing the right thing by himself and by the game. And I hope to goodness that he doesn't get rubbed out. Yeah, well, it'll certainly be very closely watched for all those reasons and uh, that tribunal hearing on Thursday evening. Now, while we're talking about McKay, uh, different spelling, different, uh, well, not different spelling, it's a small C, but a McKay, Harry McKay, uh, the Blues announced his re-signing on Tuesday for another two years, now contracted 
up to the end of 2023. And uh, his brother, Ben Mackay at North Melbourne, he's recently re-signed as well. So puts paid to that ludicrous trade scenario. I think Kane Corns, surprise, surprise, threw up about uh, Essendon going after the Mackay brothers. And the Blues will certainly be relieved about that one finding because in a, a pretty ordinary year for them, he has been an absolute shining light, hasn't he? He has. I've got to say, that that's not exactly the contract extension that screams, I want to be a Carlton player for life. That's a little bit of um, column A and column B for mine. Personally, if I was a Carlton fan, I would have felt far more comfortable at this stage of Harry's career if he put pen to paper for, say, four more years or five more years. Now, I know that the mega contracts get a little bit of uh, criticism, but I think four or five years would be a solid commitment for most of his football life to Carlton. A two-year extension, I think that's pretty lukewarm from where I sit. No, that's a, uh, that's a fair point. I guess it goes against the grain of how young guns are being re-signed with clubs right now, but we've seen those tendencies sort of wax and wane a bit over the years. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on, speaking about Carlton, because uh, they did have a very generous benefactor for the last 20-plus oh, years, I suppose, of course, best remembered um, as the high-flying chairman of the Sydney Swans, and uh, that is Dr. Jeffrey Edelston, who unfortunately passed away uh, late last week. And um, I guess there are a lot of people our age finally revive a lot of uh, memories, most of them pretty gaudy, it has to be said. Yeah, you've got to say, you know, when all said and done, he had a crack, not just in the world of football, but in a number of spheres. And I'll say this about Jeffrey Edelson. I, I guess there was a lot of sniggering and his connection with football continued right until recent years, of course, with his presentation on Brownlow nights. And we were sometimes privy to that firsthand as we were there covering it for radio. But I'll say this about Jeffrey Edelston. He didn't die wondering. He obviously wanted to be a high profile medico and that's exactly what he was. And, the other thing about Jeffrey Edelston, towards the end of his life with taxation problems, he did present, I think, to the US with some taxation issues and said that he was terminally ill. So I guess in his dying breath, he could say, I told you so. Yeah, you know, my, my favourite uh, Jeffrey Edelston story, it's not about the, the helicopters or Leanne or Warwick Kappa, but it's about how the night... Um, his group was awarded the licence for the Swans ahead of the more conservative, but perhaps in retrospect, safer selection, Basil Sellers. Uh, there was much celebration going on uh, at the Edelston place of abode and uh, a spontaneous party was thrown and uh, much celebrating happening. And um, his right-hand man and marketing guru, Bob Pritchard, who was also involved in those early days at the Swans, um, was there. And Jeffrey uh, Edelston called him up to uh, a, a private space. I think it was the bedroom. He said, uh, I need to talk to you quickly. And Bob Pritchard went in and uh, they sat on the edge of the bed and 
Uh, Pritchard said to him, isn't this great? And uh, Edelston promptly turned around and said to him, yep, the only problem is I don't actually have any money. <laughs> so <laughs> they then had to go out and find a whole lot of investors to pay the license fee. Um, and it all went uh, it all went pretty pear-shaped for uh, <laughs> Edelston's ownership of the Swans pretty quickly. So um, a mixed bag there, but it was certainly glamorous times um, in that mid-80s context when he took over the Sydney Swans. So, um, yeah, always sad to see the passing of anyone. So he'll certainly be remembered as a, quote, colourful character, unquote. Um, tell you another colourful character in football, funny. Uh, journalist Caroline Wilson. Now, I tossed up whether to talk about this story because um, I got a bit annoyed yesterday when I saw a tweet from Fox Footy, which was quoting SEN Breakfast announcer Gary Lyons' reaction to what Caroline Wilson had said on another football show the previous evening. And it's exactly that sort of journalistic circle jerk and creating of clickbait, which is dragging the quality of the football media down. However, I think this has sort of morphed into a story for a number of reasons. One is that um, a fair number of other media, not surprisingly perhaps, picked up on the story. The story being that uh, St Kilda's Seb Ross and Tim Membry um, didn't play last week and went home from where the Saints were staying to be with their partners with newborn children. And um, Caro, it was sort of a double-edged sword, this. She reported that St Kilda people were unhappy about the departure of that pair. And she then weighed in with a bit of editorial comment for good measure, which surprised a few people whom have seen her very regularly over the years trot out stuff about the boys' club and um, sort of... Uh, pushing the case of women in football. Well, this one certainly wasn't too uh, female-friendly. She was basically saying that she agreed with them and that um, uh, the guys shouldn't have gone home to their families and they were professionals and they should have played. So that has created a bit of a storm. But I think the most significant thing, Fanny, is that St Kilda elected sort of not to respond to this at all which you could say, look, it's just them treating it with the contempt it deserves. But on the other hand, I think it raises suspicions that she was fed that stuff from someone inside the club who wanted the point made publicly without having the guts to attach their own names to it. Yeah. <laughs> Here's somebody, well, possibly, you're 100% correct, that might have been information feed and Caroline Wilson, I think, does a lot of that work, which is journalistically good intel. But for it to be an ongoing story, given that St Kilda haven't commented on it, the game has been played, it didn't raise too many eyebrows at the time. Uh, we're talking about really a situation, again, where a team is put in, albeit for a shorter period, into a hub virtually, away from family and in the case of Seb Ross, a young family with twins, that's onerous on the mother, memory about to become a father. It didn't raise eyebrows at the time. And now you've got, as you say, the story, the reaction to the story, the reaction to the reaction. I'm worried that we're now part of the circle jerk. And quite frankly, 
the story ends with no comment from St Kilda. But of course, when big names are involved and news and TV that cover football are dying for a story or short of maybe breaking news, why not create some controversy and run with that? And I think that's what we've got here. Well, there's way too much of it as far as I'm concerned. It always seems to come from a couple of pretty obvious quarters, that particular TV show, which I'm not going to name, being the main propagator of this stuff. It is clickbait. And it's, I mean, you know, aren't there valid stories about why teams are performing well or badly or, uh, you know, what's happening with Collingwood's search for a coach? What's Nathan Buckley going to do next? What's Carlton's review focusing on? Things that at least have some sort of tenuous connection to the game. I mean, this is... Yeah, but Rowan, that's not Caroline's bailiwick. No, that's true. Well, it's certainly true. It's absolutely irrevocably true. Did I emphasise that point strongly enough? Oh, I mean, it, and look, it's not just her. It's it's the content creators, you know, it's whoever is running the social media for Fox Footy. Um, you know, so what have you got? You've got Fox Footy commenting uh, or writing a story about what an SEN host said in re- in response to what someone on Channel 9 said, uh, the significant qualifier being, of course, that um, the Fox footy thing is self-interest because the SEN person happens to also work for Fox footy. The SEN interest in reacting to what Caroline Wilson said being that the company that owns SEN also runs a podcast of which Caroline Wilson is part and uh, which the co-owner is one of the panellists alongside her. So again, we, you know, we talked the boys club last week to Michael Warner. This is why it happens because it's a pretty bloody small footy media pond these days. And uh, I think a lot of us are getting sick of seeing the same big fish in that small pond. Yeah, well, hopefully their egos are so big that they um, explode, cannibalise each other. All right, that is enough news for this week. Now, uh, I mentioned reviews before because uh, we uh, faithfully come out on Sunday evening, which meant we couldn't talk about the final game of round 13. So we're going to do that now. So Queen's birthday Monday was the final game of round 13. Of course, the big freeze and uh, again, terrific to see enormous amount of money raised for research into motor neurone disease, even with the game having to be transferred to the SCG. Uh, That was always going to be an interesting factor and it appeared to suit one team more and that team wasn't the favourite team in the end. I guess you'd have to call this one of the bigger upsets of the season. Melbourne defeated for only the second time this season by Collingwood. The Pies getting home by 17 points. The final scores, Collingwood 11-14-80, defeating Melbourne 9-9-63. The goal kickers, four goals to Cameron, three to Majacek, singles to Hoskin Elliott, McCreary, Pendlebury, and side bottom, and for the Demons, just one multiple goal kicker, 
two to Jackson, singles to Neil Bourne, Harms, Oliver, Gorn, Petrarca, Fritch, and Langdon. Uh, well, Melbourne went to quarter time with a, a narrow lead finally under a goal. But uh, from there on in, the Pies were clearly the better side. Five goals to two in the second quarter. That's where they got the break. Uh, Demons striking back towards the end of that third quarter and the Pies five points up at three-quarter time. But I've got to say, I certainly had the feeling even then it was going to be difficult for Melbourne because Collingwood in the final game of Nathan Buckley as coach, certainly rising emotionally to that occasion. And uh, they were going to be difficult to hold off from there. And so it proved three goals to them in the last quarter to just one for Melbourne. Look, not too much damage done from a demon's perspective, but um, I think uh, some pretty decent pluses coming out of this for the Pies. Uh, and a curiosity, I wonder when the last time we saw a coach depart mid-season with his team having just won its last two games. Their Pies only back-to-back victories all season. But there's some good signs starting to emerge here and there for them. Darcy Cameron's been a bit of a surprise up forward and really liking the input of a couple of kids in particular, Trent Bianco and Caleb Poulter. Finally, what'd you make of their efforts? Caleb Poulter's been good, hasn't he? He did miss a couple of shots at goal, a little wild, a couple of snaps to the left of our screen, as they say, and maybe a bit more composure there. Bianco's a good assembler and and collector of possessions. He's very composed and definitely has a future. I've got to say that this game, I mean, the SCG proved a bit of a sort of burial ground for not the aspirations of two finals teams, but certainly their current momentum over the weekend. We talk about Sydney's loss to Hawthorne and then Melbourne's loss to Collingwood. And they were very similar games to me. As you pointed out, at quarter time, Melbourne had a narrow lead. Sydney looked to be okay at quarter time in their game. And whilst the margin wasn't as wide as the Hawthorne win over the Swans. I agree with you. From that point on, Collingwood certainly mastered, bullied and owned the game. And I never thought that Melbourne were much of a chance of getting back into it. Now, look, there were a couple of great efforts by Collingwood. None the least, Braden Maynard, didn't he play a fantastic game? And that summed up if Melbourne had any chance of snatching a late victory... He took a great pack mark very late in the game to seal the deal for the Magpies. And I know that uh, Nathan Buckley made a special point in his post-match of mentioning how good Braden Maynard was, his courage and his commitment to the task. I thought Pendlebury was just fantastic. he's certainly playing better football now than earlier in the season, coming further up the field. And all in all, there was plenty to like about Collingwood's victory. You pointed out Cameron, who also took a telling mark back of centre in that last quarter to guarantee the victory. And whilst you say nothing to worry about for the Demons, I do think they have one worry, and that What's is that? They, are yet to, they are yet to put a seal and get, a, get a, an affirmative answer as to who is going to be their tall forward. Because I've got to say, they've given Wiedemann a good run at it over the last month, and he has not come up trumps. Far from it. He was MIA in this game against 
Collingwood and maybe it's time to look back to Ben Brown or emergency mix Brown. I don't know, but I think Wiedemann might be browned off, if you know what I mean, not really hitting the scoreboard. What's your take on their tall forward conundrum? Well, at least they've got options, don't they? Um, ben Brown, for more reports, not exactly banging the door down with selection pressure. Mitch Brown is certainly a hard worker. He's never going to reach dizzy heights, but I think he'll give them an honest effort, which maybe at the moment is enough. Um, I really like Luke Jackson when he's up forward. Gee, he's going to be a seriously good player for a long time, I think. Uh, very impressive. But yeah, look, it's not ideal. Sam Wiedemann, he does have that tendency to absolutely disappear from games, which is a a bit of a concern because he's not exactly a greenhorn anymore, is he? I mean, he first came to widespread attention, I guess, in that final series in 2018. We're four seasons on. So, uh, you know, probably needs to be a bit more conspicuous than he has been in several of his appearances this year. The Pies, well, you know, when their senior players stand up, they're still a pretty handy side. Great game from Pendlebury. You know, his positions had his positions, his possessions had real impact in this one. I thought Crisp very good as well. And uh, they'd be pretty chuffed about Cameron because I don't. Re- I reckon they've got more than that perhaps they were expecting. So uh, decent effort from him as well. Be interesting to see what brand of footy the Pies play now under Robert Harvey, whether it'll be steady as she goes or uh, whether he might change a few things up. But uh, I guess in a sense, nothing to lose now. And as I said at the outset, we're at least seeing some glimpses of talent for the future in the likes of uh, Bianco and Polter. So both uh, those teams going into the bye have a bit of a break to reassess. Uh, No break for us, though, because straight on to round 14, five games to keep us occupied. Let's preview them. On Footyology, previews with Punch. First game on the card for round 14, and it's a big one. It is at GMHBA Stadium between Geelong and the Western Bulldogs. Now, as we record this on Wednesday morning, uh, no fans will be attending that game, but uh, that may change uh, restrictions on the uh, coronavirus around Victoria could potentially be eased. Uh, That would happen late on Thursday. So possibly leaving the way open for at least some fans to get to that game. So uh, watch this space on that one. Uh, Palmerbet, of course, proud sponsors of Footyology, and they bring you these head-to-head odds, which are uh, as of Wednesday morning. And they say, perhaps not surprisingly, the Cats' uh, favourite on their own stamping ground. They are paying $1.64 head-to-head. Western Bulldogs paying $2.27. Stats Insider have got some interesting information on this game. The Bulldogs have an all-time 23.2% winning record at Cadinia Park and have scored more than 100 points on just five of their 58 trips down the Geelong Highway. That's not encouraging. The Cats have won their last 10 against the Dogs at this venue, dating back to 2003. In Paddy Dangerfield, seven matches playing for the Cats against the Dogs. He's been completely devastating, averaging 30.7 disposals and almost 1.9, almost two goals per game, 1.9 goals per game, while collecting 14 of a possible 21 Brownlow votes. So, wow, 
that's a pretty handy record against this particular opponent. And uh, he will be a key part of their attempt to make it 11 wins on the trot against the Dogs. Finey, uh, what else is happening in selection terms? Well, I mean, that is, and just that information from Stats Insider and those odds from Palmerbet indicate the job, the sort of Herculean effort required by the Bulldogs to topple this powerful Cats lineup at home. And they will also have to face the fact that the Cats are near full strength because Cam Guthrie is right to return. And we know what an important cog he is in the Geelong machine. Who misses out? Gee, it's going to be an unlucky player. Maybe Luke Dalhouse, who's been important structurally for them. But you know what? In the end, you can only take 22 players plus a sub to the party and maybe Dalhouse misses an invitation. Uh, from the Bulldogs' perspective, they'll welcome back Eastern Wood. It looks a straight swap for Ryan Gardner. That forward line, which has received so many bouquets uh, since that great win over Port Adelaide, makes it very hard to tip against Geelong, doesn't it? Just when you think how well not only the individuals are playing, I'm speaking, of course, of Tom Hawkins, Jeremy Cameron and Gary Rowan in particular, but the synergy between those players is amazing given how little football Cameron has played with the other two, but it's working perfectly. Geelong seem to be playing a more direct brand of football when Cameron's in the side, almost saying that his leads and positioning and that of him and Hawkins demanding quicker movement of the ball, that's resulting not only in a better spectacle, but a much harder task for the opposition. Now, the Bulldogs are a good team. We know that. But their Achilles heel is their back line. And that back line is going to be put under immense pressure. Alex Keith and Zane Cordy, are they up to the task? I don't think so. And that's why I'm tipping Geelong by 29 points. Well, uh, all I need to say really here is ditto. Uh, everything you've said there I agree with entirely. I think the area where Geelong can most capitalise is up forward. And that uh, that forward setup. I mean, I did say after the Port game, I think it's the equal of anything they've had in terms of forward, Richard, since the days of Malcolm Blight uh, coaching Gary Ablett, Billy Brownless, Barry Stone, etc. It is loaded with goal kickers, Cameron, Hawkins, Rowan, and in the smalls, throw some mids in as well. They are very, very potent up forward. And they're very, very solid midfield as well. Guthrie, of course, um, a key returnee for them. Dangerfield's record you've just heard about. We go on about the dogs' midfield, and it is deep. Well, it's going to need to be deep, but I think they might need a little bit more than that. And that defence, perhaps the one suspect area in the equation for them, in this particular matchup looms as a real concern, as does the venue. And look, we talk about Optus Stadium in Perth and the home state advantage for the WA teams, but it is clearly Geelong that has the most pronounced home ground advantage in the competition. They just barely lose down there. They, they might lose one game a year. And uh, the record for, what, 15 years now has just been incredible. They have won 21 of their last 23 appearances. Uh, on their own patch. And uh, I see another one coming up here. I think the Bulldogs will make them work for it, but I do see Geelong ending up reasonably comfortable winners. Uh, I'm going for the Cats by 22 points. 
So it should be a great game, that one, Friday evening. Let's hope at least some fans are allowed in to see it. And, of course, we'll be talking about that post-game on our live stream, Footyology Final Siren, live on Twitter and Facebook. Make sure you tune in for that. Let's now preview Saturday. Second game on the card and the first of three to be played on Saturday. It is between Gold Coast and Port Adelaide. It's an afternoon game, 1.45pm Metricon Stadium on the Suns' home turf. Uh, They are not favourite, however. They are, well, fairly comfortable outside, as Palmer Bet telling us Port Adelaide, a warm favourite, paying $1.36 on the head-to-heads. And Gold Coast, $3.18. Stats Insider say that so long as people keep reminding each other of Port's record against good teams, we feel it's just as appropriate to keep highlighting how seriously dominant they've been against bad ones. They're now on a 15-game winning streak against bottom eight opposition, posting a massive 163.8 percentage points in the process. As for Gold Coast, well, they're struggling once again, indicated by how lacking they are where offensive diversity is concerned. So far, Ben King has amassed 27 more scoring shots than the next best son, which is Isaac Rankin, and which qualifies as the third biggest discrepancy in the league outside of Tex Walker at Adelaide and Harry Mackay at Carlton. So it appears to be for the Suns a case of Ben King or bust. Uh, what about the other end of the grand final? They've looked pretty vulnerable there too. Uh, anyone who may return to cheer them up a bit? Yeah, they do get some cheer because they've got Sam Collins returning and hasn't he been a, a success story bobbing up at the Gold Coast? So an important returnee there. And I think little Malcolm Rosas, who spurned a couple of chances against Fremantle, might find himself on the outer. And good news for Port Adelaide, may I add because they welcome back after a four-match suspension. Remember a man by the name of Scott Lysette? Oh, I do. Yeah, he goes all right. A, almost a forgotten figure there after a four-match suspension, but he's back and Laddams might be in the gun. Look, Gold Coast were very disappointing, weren't they, against Fremantle? That was a weakened Fremantle that they lined up against. And it's not good enough to say just because they had to travel across the Nullarbor that they don't put in a fair shift of work. And that was a poor performance right across the ground. We can expect more from Matt Rowell, his second game back. Shouldn't have expected too much for him first up. Pardon me. But apart from Took Miller, who worked tirelessly on ball, they had very little from their midfield. And that simply won't cut the mustard against a top eight team like Port Adelaide, who themselves are now coming under some sort of microscope, given that they find it hard to beat teams above them and not as difficult teams below them. In other words, flat track bullies. But here's a chance to be just that. Unfortunately for Gold Coast, the longer the season goes, and this is a story that we've sung or a hymn that we've sung before, isn't it, Rowan? The lesser the output. So we're looking for some arrest to that pattern, but I can't see it against Port Adelaide, who would be absolutely dirty on themselves to drop a game to the Gold Coast on the rebound, having lost to the Cats in a pretty high-quality game, let's be honest. Port Adelaide for mine, 
not all that comfortably, by 19 points. All right. Uh, I think the margin might be a bit bigger than that. And you touched on it there. I mean, yes, they lowered their colours to Geelong at home, but easy to forget that they were in front in that game after kicking the first three goals of the last quarter. So uh, it, it wasn't by any means a bad performance. They just got outplayed by a potential premiership side. So, uh, you know, it's a lot like they've got a really bad form trough they've got to haul themselves out of. Uh, they are really intimidating uh, statistical numbers, 15 wins in a row against bottom eight opposition. And uh, the other thing working in their favour here is their record both against the opponent and at the venue. Now, you might remember Gold Coast got its first ever win in the AFL against a then hapless Port Adelaide back in 2011. Well, that remains the only time the Suns have ever beaten Port since then. Port have won 11 games on the trot and their record at Metricon Stadium is also particularly good and not just against Gold Coast. Of course, last year that venue used quite a lot in uh, the hub arrangement uh, induced by the coronavirus and they performed really well there against all opposition. So out of 11 games at Metricon Stadium, now Port have won 10 of them uh, the only loss coming against Geelong last year. And last year there, they managed to knock over Fremantle there, West Coast, uh, GWS and North Melbourne as well. So they like the venue. They certainly like the opposition and they love beating up on weaker opposition. That all seems to add up to a pretty comfortable Port win for mine. I'm going for Port Adelaide by 36 points. That's the afternoon game. Uh, what about the twilight game? 4.35pm Saturday afternoon and at Blundstone Arena in Hobart. This game originally scheduled for Marvel Stadium, of course. The pandemic putting paid to that. So North Melbourne taking on Brisbane in Hobart, which they'd probably be perhaps even happier about than playing the Lions at Marvel Stadium. Uh, the odds don't suggest that necessarily. Brisbane, a very warm favourite, thanks to Palmer Bet. And uh, these odds current as of Wednesday morning. You can check updates on your Palmer Bet app or at the website palmerbet.com. Brisbane paying just $1.16 head to head for the win here. North Melbourne, uh, a big outsider, paying $5.30. Now, Brisbane are the league's third best team from a metres gained differential point of view, according to Stats Insider, and have so far produced a positive 283 number this season. As for North, they're easily the league's worst in that realm, surrendering an average of 571 metres per game to opponents. That is a big reason why Brisbane have the league's third best inside 50 differential and North had the AFL's second worst. So um, that is something the Roos need to improve. Can they improve their prospects with some uh, decent names coming back into the fold, finally, or is it as you were after what was a pretty decent effort drawing against GWS last week? The latter there. They're probably going to go in unchanged, I would have thought. Brisbane not in that position because of an indiscretion Remember before the bye by Dane Zorko. He's out for a week. So no captain. Reese Matheson likely to take his spot. And in that game, 
that Ryan Lester again injuring his hamstring. And I wouldn't be surprised to see the Irishman Madden recalls of the team. We remember that a few weeks ago, famous goal that he kicked on the run, much loved up at Brisbane. Hard to see North Melbourne repeating their heroics down in Tasmania. That being said, Brisbane would not want to take this game lightly because we know that North Melbourne are, as you pointed out in your preview, probably a tougher prospect at Blundstone Arena than they are back here in Melbourne at Marvel Stadium, their more common home ground. Brisbane have too much to play for and too much quality. Lockie Neal now, he's been back and fit enough to really have a big say on this game. He'll go toe-to-toe with Ben Cunnington. Should be very interesting to watch those two great midfielders take each other on. McInerney, he's really rising in my estimation as a ruckman and I think Goldstein will have his hands full keeping up with McInerney as he makes his way around the ground. Joe Danaher provides a bit of support in the ruck and a bit of a target up forward. Hipwood has started to hit some really good consistent form. Charlie Cameron looking more like the irresistible Charlie Cameron of 2020. We know that McCluggage is having a great season. We know that Harris Andrews rules the air down back for Brisbane. All of that, plus the form of Mitch Robinson, for example, which is almost career best, is just a bridge too far for this young, developing North Melbourne team that certainly are performing, given their early season travails, above expectations now in the mid and hopefully latter parts of the season. Brisbane fairly comfortably by 31 for me. Well, I've just... I don't know if, if I was struggling in the tipping, which I'm not because as usual, I'm beating you. But uh, if I was needing to retrieve a few tips here, this is one of those games where I might actually be tempted. It's just got that. I've just got a bit of a hunch about this one. couple of reasons why um, Brisbane have not a great record against the Roos. They have won the last three against them. Uh, since their return as a good side under Chris Fagan. But even those wins haven't been necessarily convincing. Only beat uh, North by one point last year and 12 points and 20 points the two previous games to that. Uh, As to the venue, well, Brisbane haven't played there. So that's always uh, adding an extra dimension to it too. This is uh, virgin turf for the Lions combination. And North Melbourne, of course, having played there just last week and almost snatching what would have been a terrific win. So they're very familiar with the venue. They play well there. And uh, the other side doesn't even know how to play it. So that's something to be considered as well. All that go, said, on, Ro- go on, Rowan. Throw caution in the breeze. You've got a good lead. No, no. I'm, I'm a conservative tipster, Finey, and I'm in no mood to uh, change tack on that one now. Uh, <laughs> So I am sticking with Brisbane, uh, but I, I think it might be quite narrow. I can see North really pushing them in this game. Uh, danger game for Brisbane for mine. Uh, I'm going for the Lions to win this one by 10 points. So uh, let's just see what unfolds there. But uh, if North do manage to cause what would be a big upset, I'll be saying, I told you so, except I couldn't be stuffed tipping them. Uh, All right, that is the second Saturday game. One Saturday night game. Let's have a chat about that one. Saturday evening, 7.25pm at Giant Stadium in Sydney. We have GWS 
taking on Carlton. Carlton coming off the bye. Uh, the Giants, of course, uh, probably lucky to escape with a draw against North Melbourne, the first draw of 2021. Uh, having said that, they go into this game favourites with Palmer Bet on the head-to-heads. The Giants paying $1.65. The Blues, $2.25. Stats Insider tell us that the Giants have won six of their last seven games against the Blues, with those six wins coming by an average, cop this, of 71.3 points. Boy, they have done some beating up of Carlton. Carlton's solitary win against the Giants in this time frame came by a single point. And note on Josh Kelly, Giants star, terrific against the Roos he was. In five of his last 10 games, he's collected at least 20 touches and kicked multiple goals. He'd achieved those numbers in just three of his preceding 40 games. So he is weighing in on the goal-scoring front as well as the possession front and shaping as a pivotal player in this game. As for other pivotal players, Fanny, uh, anyone returning to the fray? Who should we look out for in selection terms? Phil Davis. Good to welcome him back. And he played in the VFL last game, last, uh, I think there was a game last week, actually, and played pretty well, 18 disposals. So he is back. Jake Stein, who was... Uh, not terrible in the game against North Melbourne, probably going to make way. And they do have somebody knocking down the door. Pretty hard to keep Jake Riccardi out because in the same game for the Giants, he kicked eight goals and had 24 possessions. I think that demands a spot in the seniors and I wouldn't be surprised if Mumford or Flynn make way because that ruck combination seemed to be a luxury that wasn't paying dividends for the Giants against North Melbourne. They don't need both of them, is what I'm saying. As for the Blues, Lockie Plowman is back. You know, they're pretty lucky, Carlton, that they had a bye last week because in their last game, of course, Harry Mackay and Nick Newman both went off with concussion issues. But that was longer than 12 days prior to this game. So they are both eligible to play. A bit of a break there. And Plowman comes back and Jack Nunes, who was brought in, for his replacement, doesn't hold his spot, I don't think. Carlton have been, and we always seem to observe that even in losses, they're not terrible this season. But unfortunately, and this is the huge cause of frustration for their fans, they're not getting enough wins on the board to be a serious contender for the finals. And it seems as though another year, you'd almost say wasted, because by now in their development, it really is finals or bust for the Blues and going up to play the Giants as you pointed out, thanks to Stats Insider, a real bogey team for them, doesn't seem to be a sort of game this year that they're likely to cause an upset in and that's really the disappointment in Carlton that they're not causing upsets Kelly's in fine form Toby Green hit the scoreboard but inaccurately against North Melbourne, well Don't expect that luck to hold out, Carlton. He normally gets enough goals to get his team over the line against the likes of you. And I think the fact that you've got Toby Green and Kelly firing means that they've got aces in the pack that Carlton won't be able to overcome. Phil Davis back, not only structurally, but also sort of emotionally is a big lift for the Giants. 
I tipped them by 21 points. Well, interesting stats about uh, the head-to-heads. It's either, it seems like, particularly in the last few, couple of years, it's been boom or bust for Carlton when it comes to the Giants. So how's this for a bit of contrast? Last year, the Giants only beat Carlton by nine points. That game, however, was at Metricon Stadium. Um, three meetings prior to that, Carlton got that win you heard us talk about by one point, and that was at Marvel Stadium. In between, uh, the Giants have won one game against the Blues by 105 points and the other one by 93 points. And their record at this venue is appalling. They lost their uh, first visit there by eight points. And since then, in three subsequent appearances at the ground, uh, the losing margins have been 81 points, 62 points and 93 points. Now, the... Big issue for here, I, th- I think it's a good point about Carlton's competitiveness. It's easy to overlook in the fact they haven't been able to go on and win, but um, they've only once been beaten by a margin of any more than um, 31 points this season. So they have routinely been pushing sides deep into games and losing by around that 20-something point mark. Uh, I've got a feeling this one might be a bit more. I reckon the Giants are going to be pretty pissed off about their effort against North Melbourne last week. Uh, of course, you aspiring to a finals berth. Uh, that was two match points probably thrown away by them. Uh, they absolutely have to win this one. And I think they might be in uh, a bit of a mood for uh, taking out their bad temper on the Blues. So I'm going for GWS fairly comfortably in this game. I reckon they might win by 40 points. That's a Saturday card. Just one game on the Sunday this week. It's between old rivals, but in a pretty, for them, unusual location. 3.20pm, Sunday afternoon, two bitter rivals, of course, meeting in three consecutive grand finals in the mid-80s, and the enmity has lingered ever since. I'm speaking about Hawthorne and Essendon. The venue, well, originally this game scheduled for the MCG, a Hawthorne home game, but uh, the coronavirus struck again. And this, as a result, has been shifted to Launceston and the University of Tasmania Stadium, a ground where, not surprisingly, Essendon has not played before. Of course, Hawthorne pretty comfortable on this turf. They have a very good record there, which I'll tell you about shortly. Uh, that said, and even with Hawthorne coming off its best win of the season last week up in Sydney, it's the Bombers who go in favourite. They are paying $1.56 on Palmerbet in the head-to-heads and the Hawks paying $2.45. Now, Stats Insider say that this game pits the AFL's second-best points-per-game attack up against the league's third-worst defence as well as an opportunity for Essendon to make up for that shocking round one collapse when Hawthorne pipped them at the post after the Dons had led by the best part of seven goals from memory. Another big difference between these two teams is what happens inside 50. The Bombers average the league's fifth most marks inside 50. The Hawks rank second last in that same metric. Uh, Have either... Got any decent players coming back or have they lost anything finally? I've got the feeling the Dons might have one or two handy inclusions. 
Yeah, but they do have a couple of big outs, of course. It was uh, in the last game that Andrew McGrath injured his uh, knee and that means probably no more football this season, Rowan. So he's out. Zaharakis, less important in the latter stages of his career, hurt a hamstring. He's not playing. But the good news is, welcome back, Sam Draper. Played in a scratch match and got some match fitness up. He's definitely back. And that might mean Andrew Phillips misses out. Ambrose came on as the medical sub against the Tigers, played pretty well. I think he holds his spot. And Devon Smith, who, look, his form's been up and down, but I think you'd prefer Smith in the team than out of it. He's right to return as well. As for the Hawks, a couple of outs for them. Warple has a one-match suspension for a illegal tackle, dangerous tackle. He's out. And Harry Morrison, who started so well in that win over the Swans, but injured his hamstring, can't be considered. James Cousins is one that could come in. Morris, the sub, also would be likely to hold his spot in the team as well. Mitch Lewis could be considered. He's now available after some concussion concerns. Uh, the interesting one is Ned Reeves, who was a late withdrawal for John Segler. Well, there's no way you're dropping Segler on his form against the Sydney Swans. He, in tandem with McAvoy, had a big say in the results. So expect him to hold his place and Ned Reeves to have to call his jets in the VFL. The venue makes it a whole lot more interesting, as does Hawthorne's surprise win over the Sydney Swans, because before those two were added to the equation, you'd be very comfortable with the way Essendon are going that they would be able to handle Hawthorne. So I'm going to take them as outliers. The venue, yes, it does play into Hawthorne's hand, but Essendon, I think, have shown this season a willingness to take on the tough task and... I'm pretty confident that they can go down there and still play good football. As for Hawthorne's win over Sydney, that's the outlier that I'm not banking on too much. Yes, it was a great win, but let's be honest, Hawthorne's form prior to that was parlous, whereas Essendon have really impressed, not only with the youngsters that they've added to the team, the likes of Jones and Cox, gee, haven't they been good, but also you've got, well, for mine, a real chance to win a Brownlow there at Essendon with Darcy Parrish. He has been outstanding. Add into the mix the form of Nick Hine, the recruit from St Kilda, who's added a vibrancy to that half-back line, and also pretty consistent form from a veteran like Dyson Heppel. And I think you've got enough to beat the Hawks. So I'm sticking with the Bombers, not completely ignoring the hometown factor and the improved venue for Hawthorne and saying that Essendon will get up by 11 points. Yeah, I, I think it will be tight. I, I'm sticking with the Bombers also, but with some trepidation, um, the fact that they haven't played at this ground before, you're quite right. McGrath is a, a massive loss and uh, boy, it certainly puts a bit of heat on Devin Smith because he has been really disappointing now for a couple of years. And uh, he needs to step up because I think without McGrath, they're really going to be uh, down a bit on midfield production numbers. So really time for him to step up to the plate. Uh, Draper coming back, first game back. Well, it'll be interesting. Certainly been a while since he played. So how will he go? And the, the Hawthorne tandem of Segler and McAvoy was uh, 
very, very effective last week. They took Tom Hickey, who's one of the more informed ruckmen in the competition, to the cleanest. So that will certainly have to be watched. The venue, uh, look, Hawthorne do have a great record here. Not so much in the last little bit, though. In fact, they've lost two of their last three games here, believe it or not. Um, of course, earlier this season to North Melbourne, allowing the Roos their first win of the season. Lost to Brisbane here a couple of years back by five goals. And the only win in that time was against Adelaide by three points earlier this season. So it uh, doesn't quite have the same intimidation about it, um, Launceston, as it once did for opponents. Look, I think Essendon um, should have a bee in its bonnet about what happened in round one too, because that was a, a certain win absolutely thrown away. So they should still be dirty about that. And look, they still have finals aspirations and a decent run home too. So not without a chance. Uh, this is a game that is a must win for them. I'm banking on them to do it. Uh, not by a lot though. I'm sort of with you. I think the margin's going to be reasonably tight. I'm going for Essendon to win this one by 16 points, which means really for us, Finey, we are tipping the same team in every game this round. So you're not going to make any up on me in round 14. I'll just pursue that strategy for the remaining rounds, I think, and uh, <laughs> just pace myself over the finish line in front once again. It's getting a bit boring. Um, no, no, I, I jest. Uh, all right, that is round 14 previewed. Uh, we've got one segment left in this show, and it's our favourite. <laughs> Footy All right, Fidey. Well, I've been conscious of you did say earlier this season I'd had a few Essendon-themed flashbacks, so I was pretty conscious of that, and I reckon I've hold off, held off for a fair while now. But the Bombers playing the Hawks this week, Fidey. What do you reckon that reminds me of? Uh, we might be going back to a, a famous day in 1984. Ah, yes, a day I like to call the greatest day of my life, which is a sad reflection on my life, I guess. But a 19-year premiership drought broken. Uh, I think it was September the 28th, 1984. Famous grand final, of course. Uh, Great rivalry, these two. Hawthorne had had the upper hand. They led by 23 points at three-quarter time of the 84 grand final before Essendon unleashed a then record burst of nine goals, six in the last quarter to win by 24 points. Now, uh, we're all familiar with the highlights of this, the Leon Baker blind turn and goal, a couple of goals to Tim Watson on the run. We've heard the Channel 7 call of this game a million times. Uh, Even the ABC TV version has had a bit of a run around. I've certainly watched that one a bit as well. What a lot of people may not have heard, however, and uh, kudos to the ABC for making this available. I think this was last year during lockdown, they did a lot of these sort of flashback things. It is the ABC radio call of the last quarter of the 84 grand final. Your commentators are Peter Booth, Smooth was his nickname. Smokey Dawson, Graham Dawson, great caller, a pretty passionate Hawthorne supporter as might uh, become obvious during this call. Special comments, former Essendon player Doug Bigelow, who's a pretty crotchy old customer, 
but uh, a little bit nervous about how this game would pan out. It's an interesting commentary trio, and it's a very different perspective on that amazing last quarter of the 1984 grand final. Put together a bit of a highlights package here we have. Let's have a listen. Glenn James holds the ball aloft. We're about to start the final term of the grand final. Hawthorne going into this final term with a 23-point lead. They're kicking to the main scoreboard goal. Madden back on the ground, gets the tap down. Williams, the long kick out of the centre to full forward. Van der Haar and O'Halloran who takes the front position. Baker off the pack, left foot snap. And he's put a goal on the board at the 22nd mark of the third of the final term. It's his third goal. And the difference is 17 points. Hawthorne, 10, 8, 68. Essendon, 6, 15, 51. Scores out towards Neagle. Neagle's gone for a run. Runs from the wing on the member side. Up towards half forward. Up to the high kick towards Danaherb to Mark Bradbury. Open goal. Another goal to Essendon. Bradbury's popped it through. And Essendon's second goal in 125 seconds of this final term. It's 11 points now in the grand final. Scoreboard. Bradbury's goal. Hawthorne, 10, 8, 68. Essendon, 7, 15, 57. And the Dons have scored the two goals in the early part of this final term in the 84 grand final. Duckworth goes for the short pass back to Thompson and he takes the mark. 35 metres out from goal, directly in front. Seven minutes gone, just 11 points the difference. A goal here by Thompson will make the difference. One kick, five points in it if he puts this through. He's 35 metres out, the slightest of angle. Thompson comes in the left foot, kick at goal. Goal. The goal umpire comes across and put it through. Thompson kicks his first, Essendon's eight, Hawthorne 10 8 68, Essendon 8 15 63, seven and a half minutes gone in the final term of the 84 grand final and it's just five points the difference and in this final term Essendon have three straight goals so far, Hawthorne scored us. Great gutsy comeback by the Dons. Almost eight minutes of play, final term, centre bounce uh, with umpire James, big Madden. And let's see where Byrne is. There he is. And umpire James, a perfect bounce. Madden's won all the ruck duels, but Byrne tries to take it away. Grabbed by Foles. But Darren Williams gets the Bombers going forward again. The ball bouncing free at half forward. Indecision, a chance for Baker. Can he get it across? They're in front. They're in front. Oh, he's, he's kicked it. They're in front. The Bombers are in front by a point. Baker's kicked it. That's his fourth goal. They've got the ball out of the centre. And Baker got it at half forward, a bit of jostling between opponents, picked it up and slammed it through, just snuck in. But the Bombers in front for the first time today at the 8 minute and 15 second mark in the final term. A point the difference, Essendon 9-15-69, Hawthorne 10-8-68, four goals in this term for the Bombers and they've got plenty of life in their legs at the moment. A point the difference, Van der Haar, it's coming back, it won't make it, it's whoever's in front, oh, Merritt's it. Merritt's got it, he's marked it a metre out from goal. Boy, it had a big curve on it, that one, a torpedo punt, and it came right back and tricked everybody, but the big hands of Roger Merritt dead in front. Thank heavens there's nothing wrong with my eyesight, uh, Peter. Hawthorne by a point, Merritt to put Essendon back in front in the grand final. He's dead in front, Roger Merritt, he could not possibly miss, and he has put it through for goal number one to Roger Merritt. The time clock's showing 22 and a half minutes, but I'd say of actual time about 19. The scoreboard in the grand final, Essendon 10-19-79, lead Hawthorne by five points. 
Hawthorne 11 8 74 and in this final term the Bombers have added five goals to Hawthorne's one does beautifully merit gets the hand pass on to Harvey out comes there's a player drawn the kick Vanderhaar and O'Halloran by brilliant play Vanderhaar on to Baker bounces through yes for a goal his fifth goal Baker he kicked the goal Western. Western, oh, well, we've all got the rattles, haven't we? Thank God we've first. got more eyes here. Centre bounce, two kicks in it, and the Bombers looking to their first flag, I think, since 1965. They're going forward again. It might be another goal coming up. Picked up by Western. Handball to Timmy Watson. Put it through, Timmy. He fires, and that's it. That's it. That has sealed it, I'd say. The Bombers lead by three kicks. The Bombers lead 12-19-81. They're running all over Hawthorne. They've added seven goals to one in this final quarter. Biggs, congratulations, son. You've oh, waited a long time. Don't do it to me, don't do it Isn't to it me. 12, 19, 91. Hawthorne, 11, 8, 74. Pick in by O'Halloran. What a transformation over this game since half time when Hawthorne led by 25 points from the king. It goes towards Watson. A sealer. Oh, he's he's brought through. Another for one. Goal. It's raining goals for the Bombers. They have scored. They have scored eight goals to one. And Duckworth, a nice hand pass to Donnell, out towards Hawker. And Neagle running free. He can run in from here. Ede looks a tired player, but he's been on the interchange today. Neagle has a bounce, runs into half forward, a thumping kick by Neagle. This will really seal it beautifully for them. And he's popped it through. A magnificent goal on the run by Merv Neagle. And Bombers, you can celebrate over summer. Handballed across to Loveridge, but his kick is a bit uh, short and the mark is taken. That's it! The grand final and Essendon Premiers for the first time since 1965 in 1984, having trailed by 23 points at three-quarter time. Oh, my old man, Smokey Dawson. Uh, I think you could almost... Visualise him in the Hawthorne scarf during that call, Rowan. Uh, a couple of couple of bags on the desk. He did get a. They all got a little bit rattled when uh, Paul Weston kicked his goal. They called it to Leon Baker, um, and uh, the crowd noise in the in the background is pretty interesting too. It's uh, yeah, but it's always good to hear a different call of famous football moments. So I don't think many people would have heard that one before, or certainly not since it happened. 37 years ago now. Isn't that amazing? 37 years ago. Still feels like yesterday to me. I'm tearing up a bit here. A great a great and favourite footy memory. Apologies, Hawthorne fans, but it's not like you didn't win plenty of other grand finals in that era or even subsequent to that. So just cop it this time. Uh, all right, Fidey, what have you got for us? Well, I'm going to take us back to around 11, 2002, and one of the most extraordinary finishes in a game, the Carlton versus Geelong. Oh, and, yes. What do you reckon I mean, I'm going to say there, Fanny? Well, clearly there's so much to talk about. I mean... No, what do I usually say whenever you pick a game? Oh, hang on. Don't tell me you were there. I was there. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was there. I was covering it. Go on. Now, I'll tell you what. It was a great game to be there. Let's pick it up with... Two minutes to go, and maybe for our younger listeners or those with convenient black spots in their memory, maybe Carlton supporters, I'm not going to tell you what happens other than to say that we picked the game up with the Cats four points in front. 
We are down to the last minute of the game. It's in a good spot. It is in a good spot. I can't believe that uh, the Cats haven't thrown a couple of extra numbers back. 80 disposals to the Blues, 54 to Geelong. You just throw every Geelong player with you inside defensive 50. Five balls at up centre wing. King off ground. Milburn got his work cut out. Corey, it was in fact Harley. Oh, oh smothered by Pluckett. Here go the Blues. Line on attack at Bailey. Oh. Harley was knocked off the ball. Hickmont works in hard. Ratten, it's still alive for the Blues. Bradley, Corey, it's still there. Unbelievably, Clark. Free kick. Free, Free kick, kick to Carlton. Carlton's way, it was off the ball. Camberelli. Camberelli has got it too far out to score. He's 60 metres out. It'd be 30 seconds, I reckon, Brian, or less. Camberelli and the Blues trail by four points. He goes to the oh. seen anything like it in my life Brian. I have never seen a game like it. They are going to win the game. They were 37 points down at three quarter time. Oh, just Lappin has a shot on the goal line with not long remaining. Uh, a last kick I reckon. The last, almost last kick. Lappin to put the Blues in front for the first time today with nearly the last kick of the day. Well, a 50-metre penalty. Dubious and I have to say, a very questionable 50-metre penalty All has the given the back. Blues the lead. They lead it by two points. The Blues flood back. 26 seconds remaining in the contest. Can the Cats get it inside their 50 and get a shot on goal? A blistering final term from the Blues. They trailed a reminder by 37 points at three-quarter time. King and Hotton winning it down. Camparelli dispossessed. Corey Kilpatrick misses the body with the handball. Now Clark, short ball, got a target. Riccardi. Riccardi has taken the mark inside the 50. It is in good hands. It is in good hands. The I've siren got to tell you. is going to sound, Gary. This shot on goal will be after the siren, oh. and he has to kick it for the Cats to win. There it is. Oh, I tell you what, has it been a more dramatic last quarter of footy? And goals scored after the siren have been invoked. I tell you, this is a massive kick from lots of perspectives. I can't believe this last quarter, boys. Three it is in good hands. On the day for Peter Riccardi, one of the most skilled exponents of the set shot in the game. Let's watch the fate of the match riding on Peter Riccardi. It leaves the boot. It's swinging back. from the jaws of defeat at Colonial Stadium. What a finish. I told you they'd win. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Oh, amazing stuff. One of those games, I remember the whole press box sort of rising to its feet as Riccardi lined up the kick. One of the most remarkable things about that is the lead changing twice within the final minute of the game. I mean, a guy kicks a goal to put his side in front 
with what 26 seconds I think left on the clock. How do you lose from there? But uh, boy, and uh, talk about costly. Uh, Max Rook giving away the 50 to Lappin. Um, pretty fairly debatable 50 too. I thought. Do you reckon that 50 was there? Having no watched? way, uh, no way. Uh, okay, well, interesting. A great bit of play by the Cats to manage to get something from that last centre bounce clearance and an absolute heartbreaker for the Blues. They were. It's a pretty difficult time in their history, wasn't it? They would have been absolutely filthy having got to the front and thinking this is going to be a great morale boost for us. Uh, another 20-odd seconds and it's all shattered for them. So, uh, yeah, look, some great memories there for Cats fans and uh, heartbreak for the Blues for me. Well, let's put a couple of things on the table here. First of all, Geelong led by 37 points at three-quarter time. So it was a magnificent effort by Carlton to hit the front with 26 seconds to go. But, of course, this game had a controversial, not just finish, but aftermath. Simon Wiggins was the Carlton man on the mark in only his 13th game, the 19-year-old, was adamant that he had touched Peter Riccardi's kick. And evidence when they sort of magnified and did a close-up of that kick seemed to back up his claims. Well, he needn't die wondering because Peter Riccardi, post-retirement, came out and said, yep, that was definitely touched. So could you imagine in the modern game, not only did we have Carlton hit the front with only 26 seconds to go, not only did we have Geelong have a shot after the siren, but in the modern game, we would have then probably had to go up to the arc and imagine a game decided on the scoreboard with that animation as the arc probably came to the conclusion, one behind, and give the game to Carlton. Would have been quite the finish, Rowan. It would have. Jeez, uh, now you mention it, I hope a game isn't ever decided like that, um, that would be a bad thing. The thing I always think, though, and I obviously don't doubt either man's uh, claims about what happened, but must have been a fairly fine touch given that the ball still managed to travel 50-odd metres. Yeah, I mean, on that close-up, that magnification, you do see his finger bend back. And, I, you know, it was a, it was a strange kick because it looked like it was offline. Yeah. And then it swung back late. Yeah. Did the finger by Wiggins aid in the rotation of the ball, Rob? Well, well that, that, that is one thing I thought too. Uh, quite possible. One of uh, four goals for Riccardi that day. Kent Kingsley kicked four for the Cats. Three goals to Aaron Lord. Boy, a pretty different looking Geelong lineup. And for the Blues... Uh, four to Favola and three to Whitnell. As you say, they came from the clouds, didn't they? Eight goal last quarter to the Blues. The Cats only kicking two, but the one that mattered most at the end. Now, good uh, good call, Fonny. It's a uh, very, very dramatic finish to that game back in round 11, 2002, which is where we leave this podcast uh, quick plug for our sponsors, Finey, if you will, of course, starting with Palmerbet, uh, official partner of the Footyology podcast. Play the punting advantage this footy season. Always remember to gamble responsibly. All those head-to-head odds, of course, you can 
see them updated until the games start either on the Palmerbet app or at their website, palmerbet.com. Who else do we need to thank? We always thank Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. That's in the big Albert Park uh, sort of uh, shopping complex. There's plenty of shops there, restaurants, cafes, but the standout is our mates at Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Go down there, grab a burger and watch the beautiful people go by. You'll be the source of envy with the Andrew's Hamburgers in your hand. And also, you'll be very much a source of envy if you get a West Point property renovation or build to your home in the inner southeastern Melbourne suburbs. The rest of the street will be going, have a look at that, West Point properties. And our other great partner, Stats Insider, sports and data-driven industry leaders, providing model projections and analysis of more than 15 sports across the world. Uh, some great statistical insights provided each week in the previews by James Rosewarn and the boys. Check out their website, completely free to use, statsinsider.com.au. Give them a follow on Twitter as well, at Stats Insider. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget uh, Footyology Final Siren live on Facebook and Twitter on Friday evening following the big Geelong Western Bulldogs game. And uh, we'll return in podcast format on Sunday evening when we review this same round that we've just previewed. It never ends here at Footyology. Thanks, E Company. Catch you soon. Listener.